Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning episode 48 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I am recording this in a very hot, muggy, sticky room. If I get shiny, those of you watching, if I get shiny as I go along, it's because it's about 110 degrees in here. And I'm balancing a lot of needs today. Today is July 20th. Jack-Jack is 16 months old. We were supposed to go to New York and look at the buildings, but it's really, really hot. And it just seemed like a foolish day to drive around in a car, looking at billboards and buildings. So we're going to go on a different day. I have a good friend of mine, Amy here, Zoomy Zoom. Normally I need to be all alone to record a podcast. So I've relegated her to the upstairs. She's on crutches again. Not too happy about that. But she's helping me. She's organizing. You all can't see this that are watching me, but my office is just piles of bins. And so she's a meticulous organizer and she's laid up in a cast. So I'm like, come to my house and organize my stuff. So that's where I start from today in beginning to record this podcast. Last time I talked about birthdays and just all the different birthdays and time and how we try to micromanage years and the importance of a certain date. You know, and here I am making this date important because it's the 16 month birthday of Jack, but he's no really not much different than he was yesterday, nor will he be tomorrow. It's just a day. So I woke up this morning thinking I was driving to New York City, worried a little bit about trying to get all my work done by the week's end. Here I am getting a lot of stuff done on Wednesday. So as I'm talking about coming back from Boston, moving back to Concord, creating new friendships, starting new jobs, establishing myself as a citizen of Concord again, thinking I was never going to come back, getting married, failing at that first marriage, not necessarily failing. The marriage just wasn't meant to be. I don't believe it was a failure. It was a lesson and a growth opportunity. Divorcing Eric, meeting Kenny, all that went into that. And then taking all of that sort of strife and putting it together and creating what I call my picket fence reality. Those years where I felt like I had done it. I had created the family, the perfect family, the husband, the wife, two cute little girls, the beautiful house, the picket fence, the dance lessons, all the little communities that we create when we have children. I will have to be very honest here. You know, I try to say I had this perfect life and I wrecked it. There were lots of times in my life where my life didn't feel perfect. I felt like I had sort of settled. One thing I never wanted growing up was to just come back to where I was born and do the same thing my parents did. And here I was doing it. And in some ways, I've done a lot of things my parents have done, and it's hard for me to take sometimes. But always, these things bring to me self-reflection. And so I started thinking about, and I've often thought about family. And I read this amazing article today as I was having my coffee and thinking, okay, I'm not going to New York. How shall I organize my podcast for today? You know, so I do reading on social media and I watch the news and all. And I came upon an article on family. And the name of the article is, it's called Queer Family Building 101. And it was in, in a publication that is very supportive of and influential in the transgender LGBTQ community. The article was phenomenal. And having several people in my life very close to me, people that I have coached, a family nearby, you know, just a lot of people navigating the LGBTQ world 
on whatever their level is. I'm learning and learning all the time. But this article resonated with me because I have often felt completely out of place in my family. Not for the same reasons, not for reasons that even get noticed or should get noticed. I think there are times we all look around and feel like a square peg in a round hole. One of my strongest memories of a runner is a girl named Gracie. She was Gracie Ferguson and then Gracie Tilton. I'm talking about you, Gracie. And I remember her high school years and she was as unique as they come in all the best ways. But when you're a teenage girl, what you want to do is fit in. And I remember one time having an intense conversation with her and she goes, I just feel like I don't know how to plant myself. Like I'm in a flower pot with all these other flowers, but I'm not planted. I don't know how to fit. She was just so stricken with this desire. It was, it was a really, really, I still remember it. All these years later, I remember it. And she's just married now and doing wonderful things with her life. Smart, smart, smart. But you know, she just didn't know how to fit and she didn't know how to fit anywhere. She had very different parents. Mom and dad lived separately. And I know that she really struggled to who am I? Who am I and why am I here? With my favorite saying. Anyway, these things have come up for me. So when I look back to my white picket fence family that I had created, I know that in a bubble, we had it. Kenny and I got along great at that time. We were a good match. We were good parents to Gracie and Molly. My mother was a huge support and so supportive of the babies and being a part of their life. And I was successful in my job at that time. But I remember as I went along, just like a child, when things got good, I got anxious. And I remember increasing amounts of anxiety building as the years went along. That I remember. The other thing I remember, and when I look at my whole life, when I really look at my life and analyze it, I realize that the term family for me has often been around those that I'm biologically related to, but not always. And I have a family that is full of people that are or are not related to one another, either by flesh or marriage, you know, genetics or whatever. And I have people in my life that I'm not related to at all that are closer to me than anyone in my family. So it just opened my eyes a little bit to how I look at it. So when I look at my life in general, as a little girl, family would be who you're related to. And as children, we don't have a lot of say in that. And my family was, you know, dysfunctional in many ways. Obviously, I was abused as a child by a family member. So that right there indicates that family isn't necessarily a happy word for me. In my family growing up, I had multiple sets of grandparents because on my mother's side of the family, her parents had divorced and they divorced in the 50s when people didn't divorce. And so a divorced family was a stigma. I know that all that went into that stigma has stayed with my mom and her sisters and brothers. It was a traumatic time for them. Who do they live with? How are they being treated? You know, all of, all of those things. By the time I was born, so when I was born, I had a great grandmother, my Nana, and I had great grandparents on my dad's side, Grammy and Grampy Whitehead. So until I was seven, I had great grandparents. And during those first seven years, one by one, they passed away. And then I had grandparents. So I had Grammy and Grampy Higgins, and those were my Higgins dad's parents. And he didn't have siblings. There were not a lot of Higgins relatives. I had some cousins that lived in central Massachusetts, but there weren't a lot of Higgins relatives. Aunt Dot and her husband, Jim, are the two I remember the most. I have her piano in my, in my music room there. But my mother's mom and dad had both remarried. So I had Peppo, who's my mother's father, and Grammy Caroline. And then I had Graham's Butterfield and Grampy Max, and Max was her husband. So Graham's and Max had Michelle, my aunt Michelle. So I'm related to her through my mother's mother. And then Peppo and Grammy Carolyn had Walty and Nathan, and they're my uncles. So Michelle was a little bit older than me. My grandmother remarried and had children, I think, earlier than Peppo did. My aunt Michelle is closer to my parents' age, whereas Walty and Nathan are a bit younger than me. So I have two uncles that are younger than I am. 
Jack is an uncle. So, so I'm creating the family juniper as opposed to the family tree. Growing up, Christmas was a huge family event and we all got together. And when I say all, Graham's Butterfield and Grampy Max came and Pebble and Grammy Carolyn. So you have this divorced couple that come together for Christmas because it's a holiday and it's their children. Now, there were also lots of separate things, but our family really interwove themselves always. And so I didn't grow up with this idea that divorce was this horrible, bad thing that happened. My parents, my grandparents were divorced and remarried and we had this functional family. Now, within my functional family are all the things that every family has and struggles with. Who do we accept and how do we accept and how are we treated? I will say, in spite of the fact that I was a victim of abuse, I was never hungry. My activities were supported. My choices were supported. I had a lot of love and a lot of acceptance, not just in my nuclear family, the parent, child, live in the same house family, but my cousins and aunts and uncles and my, my grandparents. I spent lots and lots of time at my relatives' houses, especially in the summertime. And my cousins and relatives came to me. One of my favorite childhood memories is Pepo coming with his pickup truck. And he'd pile all the kids in the back seat and drive around the block really fast. He'd get arrested for that now. <laughs> I remember driving all the way to York Beach from Concord, New Hampshire, in the back of a pickup truck with all of Grammy Carolyn's, her sister, Patty, and all of my aunts and uncles and cousins, or nieces and nephews and cousins. And some of them are, are not blood relatives at all. I wasn't related to Grammy Carolyn. So, so none of her siblings' children would be blood related to me. But I'll tell you right now, those are some of my favorite cousins and some of my strongest memories. In the process of marriages and divorces, those have happened in my family as well. You know, my auntie Sheila, so hi Sheila. So she's my aunt, she's younger than me. She's a Grammy five or six times over already. She married my uncle Walty and then they divorced and she's remarried to my uncle Mike. So I have no blood connection to Sheila, but I'll tell you right now, she is family. And whenever we have family events here, it doesn't even cross my mind not to invite her. Is that always super comfortable? With her and Walty, over the years, when you're parenting children together, you learn to be comfortable around one another. And you learn to put the family, the needs of the children you brought into the world ahead of the needs of your own ego. I feel very, very comfortable in the fact that my family is not only blood related, but also marriage related and just connection maintained. My biological father isn't the one I grew up with. So I have siblings, nieces, nephews, cousins, aunts, uncles. That wasn't an easy transition for some of those people. When you're a love child, <laughs> you know, it was easy for me to feel like I was the one that should be judged because I was the child born in the manner I was born. But you can all judge me. I, you know, again, I don't care. But I have a whole, you know, you go on Ancestry.com and DNA and all that. You know, I had emails from people that live thousands of miles away that two or three generations ago were related. And it's fascinating to me. What it tells me is that, yes, genetics is hugely important. What it also tells me is that we're all related. On some level, I think if you kept going back, We'd all be related. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon, <laughs> six degrees of separation. I think sometimes we put this emphasis on genetics and biology. So I have a family where nature versus nurture, who am I related to and who raised me? Who am I related to and who am I not related to that I consider family? And, and it's a very gray area for me. It is not black and white. And so when I think back to my picket fence family and my desire that I thought a black and white, this is what family is, is what mattered. I realized why it was a difficult struggle for me. So I have Gracie and Molly and then baby Gordy and Jack. So I have these children now that are in my white picket fence home or in heaven, but they have relatives on Kenny's side of the family. They have aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, nieces, nephews. And some of these little children we've never met. <laughs> 
So here's a family that's very divisive. And when you look at the definition of family and what family is supposed to be, I find now that if I were to define family, on my side, it's very, very much defined by both genetics and the people that my blood relatives have brought into our family. I love my cousin Tara's husband, Scott. He's phenomenal. He's a wonderful human being. Heather's husband, Peter, has worked for years and years in education and athletics and all of that. You know, my Auntie Fern, I love my Auntie Fern. She's my aunt. She's married to my uncle. That's how she's my aunt. But I love her as much as I love Uncle Jimmy. <laughs> uncle Jimmy's my favorite relative, but I'm not supposed to tell anybody. You go through life and you define your family by what you think you're supposed to define it by. Something that comes to mind for me as I'm beginning or doing this podcast is kids who are adopted. So I worked at a private school once. It's a private school for special ed students. Students have had emotional or cognitive or sort of like autism or behavioral issues. And the percentage of those children who were adopted was phenomenal, like phenomenal, not in a good way. Maybe a better word is profound or too big to ignore. When you look at the population of a public school district and the percentage of kids who are adopted, and you look at the number of those kids that ended up in this particular school, it's mind boggling. And when you think of adolescence and you, you know, when you become a teenager, now you're defining yourself by yourself, not by the family definition of you. I don't try to define Gracie or Jack on purpose, but they're my kids. And so I choose clothes I like because they're too young to choose their clothes. Gracie, not now, but I mean, you know, there comes a time when children start to pull away. And part of that is who am I? Who am I? And I know that for children who are adopted, a big piece of the who am I is the physical piece. Whose tummy did I grow in? What does my DNA tell me? Why do I have this nose or this chin or these hands? And, and I know that that is a tricky road to navigate for those children. And family for them is entirely different. Adopted children that never meet their families spend their whole life not knowing who or if they have siblings, biologically speaking, other parents, you know, all of those things. And, and, and again, everyone's journey is different, but it makes you redefine family. What is family? And why do we define it the way that we do? I know for me, when I started running in high school and then especially in college, my track team members and cross country members were my family. College was successful for me because I had a family. I had a group of girls my age, women, girls then women, that had my back no matter what. We worked out together. We raced together. We won together. We lost together. And when you're like on a track scholarship and, and running is really dictating everything you're doing in college, your teammates become hugely important in your life. For me, with all my, the emotional baggage I brought in, I wasn't alone with that emotional baggage. And to this day, I have a chat group on my cell phone. You know, BUOGs, the original, the original NCAA team. My freshman year was the first year NCAA funded women's sports and BU went whole hog on a women's track team and cross country. I have had that family always. And I always, in coaching, tried to create a family for my runners so that they came into the locker room and didn't feel like, oh no, I'm being judged, but they felt like, oh my gosh, I'm a part of this amazing thing. So I've been thinking a lot about that, just how I've defined family. So now my family gets separated by divorce and all the financial strife leading up to Molly's death, all of the stress and strife around money, my job loss. My main focus at that time was to maintain for Gracie and Molly that white picket fence reality that they woke up in their bedroom that they decorated and they went to school with a lunch and they came home and they went to their dance and their theater and they did all their activities and their mommy and daddy were there. Of course, creating a false illusion of happiness is going to blow up and, and it definitely blew up for me. Absolutely. And then Molly's death 
turned to rubble any idea of family that I had. Kenny and Gracie and I, for those years, just clung to one another. Family became anyone that knew Molly, anyone that was related to Molly, anyone that was connected to Molly. And, you know, as the years have gone by, a lot of those family connections have faded away because those family members have grown up and moved on and they're developing new families, which they should. Even if Molly were alive, she may not still maintain contact with a lot of the people that we continue to look, look for because they're our last connection to Molly. So now I have Jack, and I think the biggest mistake I could make with him is to create some false illusion of a white picket fence reality. Because quite honestly, the white picket fence analogy of a happy family goes back to a time where industrialization was common. Everyone went to work nine to five. Little neighborhoods were built and every house looked the same. And it all had a fence and the mothers all were supposed to stay home and greet their husband at the end of the day with a drink and keep the house clean. And all of these things were, were very much part of that reality. And me being at the tail end of the baby boom generation, my childhood was full of those families versus the new, new age sort of families of the 60s and 70s, where both parents worked and women had more equal say. And, you know, when I was born, it was still, women couldn't get credit cards yet. <laughs> they had to use their husbands or get one with their husband's name on it. You know, when I think of the ways women weren't equal in most of my, a chunk of my early lifetime, it's phenomenal and mind boggling a bit to me. So here I am now with a baby boy who has a mother and a father, Kenny and myself, and a sister, Gracie. He has three other siblings whom he's met somewhat, but not much. I guess he's met all three now, but his daily life and his reality has nothing to do with people that are blood related to him. They are not a part of his life. And while I don't see my family a lot, I have a lot of interaction with my family and lots of questions and comments and interactions on social media and phone calls and stuff around Jack. So I feel, I feel very connected that way to my family. I guess, where am I going with this? I guess it's a reflection on family. I want to share though, what came up for me in reading the article. Then what I did was I asked Siri her definition of family. And the gist of the article is that we put a high importance of genetics and biology on family. I'm going to go to my pictures here and when I asked Siri, hey, Siri, I better be careful because she'll answer me here. She's in my, in my hands. The definition of family. So family, a group of one or more parents and their children living together as a unit. Okay, so right here, this definition excludes anyone that doesn't have kids, right? A group of people related to one another by blood or marriage. Okay, so that's a bit better. It could be a group of people, right? So family, like relatives and such. The children of a person or couple. Okay, and that makes sense. When you think of families, you think of all the multi-generations that exist in families. A group of people united in criminal activity. This is an important one, like a mafia family, the mob. Okay, that's exciting. <laughs> what I like about that, I don't like that they're doing criminal activity, but I like that family transcends blood and marriage. Family is a group of people with a common interest, right? All the descendants of a common ancestor. Okay, my family's huge. <laughs> I will never meet my whole family if that's what that is. A race or group of peoples from a common stock. Okay, so that I like better, common stock, because that to me is very open-ended. Is common stock biology and genetics? Is common stock where you grew up, like your culture? Is common stock your religious belief? You're a family because you all believe a certain way. Is your common stock your gender identity or your class and society? So that to me is a bit better. A group of related things. So this reminds me of science and the different families of things. 
So family to me is a word that evokes a feeling of warmth and connection and safety. It doesn't evoke to me what I thought I wanted to create at the turn of the century, <laughs> you know, the picket fence reality. What I get from all of these, what I get from all of these is a place where a group of people have a common theme or thread or idea or belief, and they can unite together with all their other differences and be safe and loved and accepted in that group with that theme. That's what I get from it. So healthy families that are in fact blood and marriage related are accepting of their children and of all the ways they're the same and different and who they might grow up to be. <laughs> this is where I think anyone who's different can really struggle. I have some college friends who grew up in very, very religious families. And, and so when they announced that they were in love with one another, these are two same gendered people. It was very, very difficult for their families. And they, they spent years, months and years not talking to their families. And then I don't know the details, nor is it my place to tell anyone else's story, but I do know that there was a growth in those families and they ended up being accepted back. I don't know if apologies or I don't know anything, but I do know that for a long time, they were shunned by their family. I think sometimes of the things that it's so difficult for children to share with their parents for fear of being shunned or not wanted. You look at cultural groups like the Amish and you know if you do something wrong, you're shunned. The Amish also send their young adult children out into the world to do what they want to do find their way. And if their way keeps them there, fine. And if it doesn't, then they come back, fine. So all of these things to me support self-growth and acceptance of whatever your growth may find. So I belong to the Baha'i faith. So I know in general, in the Baha'i faith, family is the basis of society. So healthy families are like a stone in a wall and a stone wall full of healthy stones will last forever. You have stones in there that are misplaced or not correct or the wrong size and it will fall down. So those misplaced stones aren't bad enough of, of themselves. They exemplify or illustrate an unhealthy family. Here is what I found out about Baha'i beliefs on family. When children are little, it is the parent's job to raise them, raise them to be good people, honest, kind, humble, a desire for service. A healthy family takes all opinions and ideas and qualities that each member brings in equally. So. While sometimes the mother's idea is the right one and the father would defer to the mother or vice versa, it's vice versa. It's not like the father's always right or the mother's always right. There's no patriarchy in Baha'i marriage and Baha'i family. It also talks about family as a place where a healthy family unit would welcome anyone into that family unit and that the important pieces of family are equality, Equity is actually probably a better word. Kindness, compassion. And then the other big piece is communication in the Baha'i faith is done through consultation, meaning you present and you have consultation. You don't argue, you present. And sometimes consultation turns into arguments. We're human and that's going to happen. If a decision can't be reached, if you have a family that has two very, very different beliefs and it can't be reached, then what has to happen is each person, each side has to acquiesce to just accepting, not agreeing. If they can't agree, they still have to accept that that's what the other person feels. And that isn't a reason to stop loving somebody or to create disunity in a family. I don't know that this can happen. I don't think our society is ready. I don't think humanity is ready for a lot of these things because it truly requires love to come first. Love comes first, right? That's it. When I looked at the title of the article, Queer Family Building 101, when I was little, queer was just an ugly word that you used if something was weird or odd. And then it became a word for gay men. 
in my age, that's how I know it. So of course I had to ask Siri about this. The first definition is an adjective and it's strange or odd. To me, there's nothing negative about either of those things. <laughs> I think some of the most beautiful things in the world are a bit strange at first or may appear odd because they don't conform or fit in. So that I'm not upset with. And I think that when I look at this article title, that's how I look at it in my limited always learning. And then of course, there's the offensive. Dated or informal, uh, an older word is slightly ill. So I'm feeling queer. And I actually think I remember my great grandmother using that word, using the word in a variety of settings that had nothing to do with sexuality or people, but things. And then now it's denoting or relating to a sexual or gender identity that does not correspond to established ideas of sexuality and gender, especially heterosexual norms. So that would be the definition I grew up with, specifically to male homosexuality initially. But now when I look at the LGBTQ community and really anyone that is an advocate and support for that community, the word to me is much bigger than that now. Not offensive. It might be offensive to some people, isn't everything. Then the noun, the offensive noun is a homosexual man. So those are the definitions of queer. What do you do when you realize you can't stay with your family? And Kenny has been you know, ignored and, and really, really heavily judged by a couple of his kids. And those relationships have struggled. One disappeared completely for a long time. So Kenny has this choice now, you know, what do I do? Make believe everything is fine because that's my child and that's my blood relative and I'm supposed to just be okay. Or do I stand firm in what I believe and do what I think is right, even if it costs me my family? So we wouldn't think twice about removing someone from our lives who treated us poorly or made an ultimatum that was unfair. You know, that's one of the first things, you know, all these memes, don't keep people in your life that don't support you and love you. Get rid of friends that criticize and judge. Well, okay, but what if that's your sister? or your mother, or your child. There is a huge sense of responsibility that you're supposed to stay connected to those people you're related to. And there's a piece of me that thinks that that's true because nothing has happened to me. <laughs> I have to laugh when I say that because something has happened to me. I just think that this is something else that varies from person to person. I have several people in my life who have nothing to do with their biological families some through adoption and foster care, some through the decision to walk away. And my heart aches because even though I have horrible memories with some of my biological family members, I also have a ton of really good ones and the good ones outweigh the bad ones enough so that I haven't felt the need to extricate myself permanently from my family. But I have had to build a chosen family, choose a family. So I think sometimes when you choose your life partner, you're choosing your family. You're the person I want to create my own family with. So I think we choose our family all the time. I, I always wonder about arranged marriages and, you know, the cultures where it's all set up for you and how that must feel. I couldn't imagine being told this is who you'll marry. I, I don't, I don't know. That just make me angry. I don't like being told what to do. In choosing a life partner, I'll go back to the Baha'i faith again, just because it's something I liked. It's not dating. It's not like, oh, be all romantic. In the Baha'i faith, the way you really know you can live with somebody forever is to do a hard project with them take college class with them, you know, go through a tough time together with them, really see how this person responds to a variety of situations. We put a lot of emphasis in our culture on romance and sex and attraction and chemistry. And those are things that tend not to last. What does last is your ability to just look at the person next to you 40 years later and not want to kill them, right? So I took a lot of interest in this because I just loved the fact that if we actually all lived this way, articles like this wouldn't even need to be written. That sometimes is heart-wrenching for me. In the steps to this, it was family is community. Well, yes, family is community. 
And I feel like a lot of the definitions create that. And community means commune, communal, all together, one group. Families combat loneliness. And if you're lonely in your family, if you're all alone in your family, and I wrote a blog post about being alone in a crowd, then that to me doesn't even equal family. And it shouldn't be that way. Creating a family and then creating a family that has multi-generations, you get access to history. In this particular article, it was older people understanding where you are in the LGBTQ world. What I love, what I love as a student of the universe and what I loved about my family growing up is every family event I went to had multi-generations. Grandmother, mother, child, great-grandmother. Like I have a picture of Molly, me and Gracie, my mother, and my grandmother. So you have the mom, the grandmother, the great-grandmother. And then there's all those great-great-aunts and uncles. So if I had to have a common theme in my family, it would be hardworking, lower middle-class, white America. And so I come from that typical Yankee stock where hard work equals good and you show your appreciation and humility through a job well done, that's very much how I feel. And so listening to stories that my relatives tell me about extreme poverty they were in and how they got out of it, I look at all of those stories as only making me stronger and more understanding in who I think I am and the identity that I have given to myself, chosen for myself. I think that it's very, very important for young people now, especially because so much is open now, to know that they have a community that from which they can gather knowledge. There's a movie called Dances with Wolves. And I like it because I really resonate really with one of the main characters, Dance with This. But Native American culture, and this is always, always interesting to me, really, really reveres, the older you get, the more reverence and status you have in the community because you have more experience than anybody. And it's experience in anything. And so I love stories of men and women, would be a hundred if they were still alive, who were gay and fell in love and lived together with their spouses, even though they weren't legally spouses. And the stories that they tell of what it was like to be gay in 1945 or 1910 or 1980, all of those stories to me are profound. For me, my story is child abuse. And I remember when I finally was able to tell, I told a relative what happened to me and she pulled me into her lap. I'll never forget it. She was like 75 years old. And she was so proper and perfect to me. And she pulled me into her lap and told me, don't blame yourself. You are not at fault here. You are a child. You had no choice in what happened to you. Even if you didn't fight or how you responded to it, now it is known and it will not happen to you again. And, and she wasn't affectionate. And she pulled me into her lap and I was like 13. And then she shared that she had experienced the same type of abuse as a child. And what I found out when I finally shared is that a lot of women in my family had gone through this. And these were generations, two or three generations beyond me. And, you know, I was able to tell and then be provided safety from the person that hurt me. A lot of my relatives weren't. They lived their entire lives in the same dwellings or the same realities with the people that hurt them. And there was no safety for them. Their job was to be quiet and not tell. That was hugely important to me. My great-grandmother's words to me about what it was like in 1918 during the Spanish flu helped me a ton in our pandemic. I know it's completely different. We have all this technology and science, but I remember, I remember what she said it was like to walk to school and see a house that was fine and then walk home and have the spray painted sign on the house that people there were sick and a week later have the spray painted sign that they had died and watching your community disappear in front of you. That was profound for me. It gave me great perspective on 
the COVID pandemic and made me much more empathetic to people who were feeling the same way because it didn't affect me that way. I love the fact that in how to build a family, you really try to build a family with multi-generations. We have so much to learn from one another, so much to learn from those that are older than us and younger than us. You know, my life is a poster life where age is just a number because I have done many things as a young person and an older person that defied the age I was at when I did those things. And, and I think that when you're finding family, it's important to find all generations, as many as you can, and then take an inventory of the people in your life. So I have a very, very hard time letting go of people. So when I take an inventory of people in my life, and there are people that have made it very clear that they <laughs> hate me, I always want to find resolution. I always want to fix it and make it right. And it's helpful for me in my family experiences and what I share to find people that also feel that way, to give me perspective on what it was like to feel that way 50 years ago, or what it's like to feel that way now in a young generation, right? Because each side creates a fuller view of the whole picture. So I loved that. It talked about other families. So adoption and foster families, you know, so if you told a foster child that wasn't really their family, well, that's not right. It most certainly is their family. It's their family now. It's the unit in which they live. And foster families need to represent society and humanity. So it's not just these, you know, husband, wife, families that can foster children, all families should foster children, whether it's two moms or two dads or one mom or one dad. I just think that the family is a microcosm of humanity. And that's actually another piece, another piece of the Baha'i faith definition of family that struck with me is look at your family, look at each member of your family as a nation. So if you're a family of four, that's four different nations living together in one place, right? So you have a mom and a mom and two kids, or you have a mom and three kids, or you have a dad and whatever you have, each family member is a nation. So you're living together under one roof, four nations in one dwelling. That sort of exemplifies that each of us are all different, are all unique in ourselves. And then by creating harmony, by creating unity and harmony among the nations of your family, when you expand that circle to actual nations and actually in families everywhere, what you have is a unified humanity, that a unified family Getting together with 10 unified families creates a unified community, which then creates a unified country, which then creates a unified continent, which then creates a unified world. And I know that is oversimplistic, but when I look at it in the day-to-day -day aspects of life, I find it incredibly helpful. I can be very controlling. I like things my way. I get irritated if I have to say the same thing 50 times. So is that me not getting what I want? Yes. Is that me being supportive and understanding of the nation, of the person who is doing the best they can, or maybe has reasons for not doing it my way? No. <laughs> we need a United Nations meeting in my kitchen later on. Just was blown away by this article and it got me thinking about all these different things. The other piece that came to me in the article was a sentence that says, like in creating a family, which then creates community, which then creates country, which then creates nation and world, let's collectively build a family where we all thrive. And that matches very much in the Baha'i notion of family as well. If there's something in the family that's hindering one person, that whole thing is wrong. It's not about that one person getting what they want or getting fixed in the eyes of the family. It's about the family stepping back and looking at the big picture and how do we need to function so that we all thrive. It brings me to a Bible story. I believe it's a Bible story <laughs> about two rooms and there's a big pot of food. And in one room, all the people are sad and gaunt and starving. And in the other room, they're all full and talking and well-fed. 
And that the physical thing is they all have spoons attached to them and the spoons are long and they're too long to dip into the stew and turn around and feed yourself. So that the starving group, they're only thinking of themselves and their own needs and, and all of this. In the group where they're well-fed is they've reached across and fed one another. Here, I'll feed you. Here, I'll feed you back. And so everyone is fed. And I think sometimes that, you know, I don't want to get this mixed up with sacrifice your whole self to make your family happy. Absolutely not. Standing firm in who you are, putting your oxygen mask on first in your family is what's going to create a family where we can all thrive. So that was just really, really interesting. This is what I just talked about. This is a Baha'i thing. The family is a microcosm. A family is a nation in miniature. I love that. I love that. And when I think of communities that have a lot of culture and differences and differences of opinion and depth and, and emotion and all of it, I think, well, you know, what a wonderful family that is to have a family full of people that are so different. <laughs> Wait, how are they the same? Oh, they all breathe oxygen. All right. We have that common thread. We all breathe. I just find a lot of beauty in that. Some other things that came up to me, which is a good way for me to sort of wind down some of the other definitions of family that came out of this article and out of what I read online in the Baha'i writings. So in the article, it really talked about the difference between feeling obligated to honor your family because it's your family and feeling obligated to stay connected or whatever, or be a certain way because it's family and it's what they want. A chosen family has no obligation. And I'm, I'm sorry, I feel that my family for Jack should also have no obligation. Other than being kind and respectful, which I have to do as well, Jack is Jack and he can be whoever he darn well pleases. However he, she, him, they, whatever he grows up and decides to be is who he is and who he will be. Chosen family, a group of people who actively choose each other to maintain significant value in each other's lives. You actively choose each other. So I have a friend that I grew up with and there was horrible sibling strife. They all were horrible to each other, terrible to each other, teasing and fighting and bullying, like the horrible things siblings get away with doing to one another that would never be allowed if you do it to a stranger. So as adults, this one particular family I'm thinking about, they all live all in different places across the United States. The pairs are divorced and they live far away, opposite sides of the country. None of the children live anywhere near each other. Now, social media connects us. I see sometimes they communicate, but their obligated family, the one they were born into, wasn't healthy for any of them. And I have to believe that their chosen families, the ones they moved away to create, are much better. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we all chose to create families that did this, that actively choose each other to maintain significant value in each other's lives? I find that a profoundly positive to build a family. And I guess if I had to say, you know, what's Jack's family going to be? So in creating a family for Jack, the biggest criticism I get for having him is that I'm selfish, that I'm going to be old and meaningless and dead for most of his life. Well, okay. <laughs> what do you say to children that lose their parents to cancer at age five? Most of their life is without their family. I understand from their perspective why they feel that way, or I understand how they could make that comment. So Jack, family for Jack. Well, I always told Gracie and Molly I wanted them to have lots of moms because I'm not the only one that should care for them. If something happened to me, they have to have other people that they can go to with trust and love. And I feel that way for Jack. I very, very strongly feel that I want Jack to have lots of people in his life, lots of adults and other people's children and people that he would be connected to enough to call family and feel like family. And I have to say my family is, we don't see each other a lot, but if something were to happen to me and Jack were to end up in the care of, of anyone in my family, I would feel fine with that because they love and accept Jack and they honor and, and revere 
the fact that he's here and they know that he's here for a reason. There are some people on Kenny's side of the family that, that I would feel okay about, but that family hasn't chosen us to be a part of their family. I can't feel bad about it. If I don't fit what they've chosen for their family dynamic, I shouldn't be a part of it. They aren't obligated to pull me in and include me. Does it make me sad? Well, I guess so, because I feel that any biological relative Jack has, you know, should be connected to him. But how do I do that in a way that fits my chosen family? And I want Jack to be able to grow up and choose his. So <laughs> part of my struggle in the years after I married Kenny and had Gracie and Molly was I tried very hard to create, I think, what I didn't have. And I think that's what we do. You know, we grow up and we change our names because we hate the name our parents chose for us or, or we do things totally differently because we hate how we had it. And then we have kids and I think we sort of think that they're going to think like we do because we've decided it. And then they grow up and do exactly the opposite of what we did because they don't want to be like us. It really is just a back and forth relationship. So I guess to wrap all this up, when I look at a thousand tiny steps to Molly ending up on the receiving end of death at age 13 and all of the steps that led to all of the events that put her there, other than the fact that she had a brain tumor, I realized that in trying to create something that I thought was real and make it look like it was real and make it feel like it was real, what I was doing was taking away the chance to really choose my family and to really choose what might really work for me and what I would want to be. It's just an interesting lesson to me. I spent a lot of time today just thinking about family and all that, all that goes into it. So I listened to a couple of great podcasts recently, and one of them interviewed my friend Jim Graham, who I had dated for a while before I met and married Kenny. He was a guest on the podcast. And he's, he's an endurance athlete. and He's always loved the outdoors and hiking and running and biking and canoeing and all these amazing activities that are endurance-based. And he talked a lot about family and he talked a lot about, you know, the ways to be happy, you know, 10 ways to succeed. And none of them were sacrifice this and give up that. All of them were do this a little bit, you know, set a goal, but have another one behind it. And, you know, push yourself hard, but not too hard. You know, like have a plan, but not a rigid plan. And the overall gist of every single one of his tips on success balanced personal focus with greater love, you know, and gratitude and approaching life with those atmospheres. Be loving and kind and show gratitude and leave wherever you were better than when, when you got there. You know, be kind to people. KK ends all of her podcasts with that. So this podcast was called Eat Half, Walk Double. It'll be in the show notes. Not that any of you know Jim Graham and want to listen to a two-hour podcast interviewing a 62-year-old endurance athlete, but in the theme of family and the things that go into choosing family, there is so much more to it than who grew you in their belly and who raised you in their home. There's so much more. And sometimes the greatest things we learn from our families are that we need to turn around and walk away. I'm walking both of those realities right now. I have family that have you know, really decided no, and I have family that love and support no matter what. Neither is bad. This is just my reality. You will hear this episode the first week of August. And it's funny, when I picture the year in my head, it's a circle, January 1st to December 31st is a circle. And the year goes up, 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 up to the end of July. And then August in my head is where the circle starts to go down, even though it's a month beyond halfway. And I think it's because my birthday is July 29th. So that's like the culmination of, yay, the top of the year. And then we go down. I look at August sometimes as like the Sunday of summer. Uh-oh, after August comes September and that's when summer ends and reality comes back and all of that. So take a look at your family. I would love, as always, I would love to hear about your families. I would love to hear more about, 
your idea of family and who are your families? What comprises your family? Is it a group of friends? Is it pets, animals that you love? Is it a barn full of horses? Is it a, you know, a communal group of people living on a farm somewhere? Is it all the people on your floor at a high rise? You know, is it a group of people from work? We have so many ways to identify and create family for ourselves. Is it just you? Are you your family? And that's it. I would love to hear about these things. A lot of what I'm writing now. So for those of you that don't know, I have my website is up and active and I have an email, like a newsletter, sign up for it and you'll get an email every week. I will tell you right now, I am not a fan of these long emails that never end. I stopped reading them halfway through. My emails aren't like that. It's mostly just a quick way for you to find out what I'm talking about on the podcast. And I've started a blog and they're a bit more real time. So I can talk about what I'm actually doing at that time. Some of my day-to-day things that go into why I'm doing what I'm doing. So it's just another way to get access to me. And I guess the website also has all my blogs. So everything I've ever written is on there in an archived form. And every week now I'm posting a new blog. The one that's coming up right now, I haven't written yet. (laughs) By the time you hear me, you'll have read it. So isn't that great? We live in dual times. Anyway, thank you for listening as always. Thank you for following along when I go off tangent. Be good to yourself. Think about who your family are, families are, or your best friends or the different families of people that you have in your life. Be good to yourself. Do something nice. It's August. Go get an ice cream cone. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444 on Facebook as Barb Higgins and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.